Well, good morning and welcome to Springbrook. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Today we're continuing a series called Cries of the Heart. Today we're going to be looking at repentance and new life. And we are glad that you are with us this morning. Repentance is the bedrock of our Christian faith and certainly something for us to celebrate. You should have received a program on the way to the service. If you would, go ahead and take that out with me for a moment. There's a welcome slip attached uh, to the right side of that. You can go ahead and tear that off and uh, you can fill that out at any point during the service. Um, we're going to, uh, at the end of my message, spend some time uh, together this morning in corporate prayer, and you'll have an opportunity um, to fill that welcome slip out. We're going to invite our prayer team to come forward, and if you, uh, if you make a decision for Christ or if you have questions or things that we can pray for about, you can write that on that welcome slip and bring it to one of the members of our prayer team, or you can simply put it in the offering uh, at the end of our service. But also on the inside of your programs, a grin insert. If you would, go ahead and take that out for a moment, and let's look at this passage from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened against again by this yoke of slavery. You see, we are all born into this condition of fallen from God. We're all separated from God. We live in a fallen world. You certainly do not have to look too far to see the fallenness of this world that we live in. But the, the, but the good news is this, is that Christ died to set us free from this condition that we've been born in. Christ died to set us free from the condition of sin. He died so that we can uh, be released and not pulled back into sin that can so easily entangle us. You see, we are born into a sinful world. You don't have to look too far to see that this world is sinful, and we're all a part of it. We're all capable of doing, all, of doing anything. Um, we live in a fallen world because of the results of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, Adam and Eve sinned. And they messed up our relationship with God. And as a result, every single one of us is born separated from God. We live in a fallen world. You know, in one sense, we're kind of like snowflakes. I know it's too soon to be thinking about winter. But if you've ever looked at a snowflake, snowflakes are all different. There are no two snowflakes alike. They're all different. But they all share one thing in common. Their structure is all the same. They all have the six, uh, six limbs, so to speak. Um, that all the, all the structures uh, are exactly the same, and they're all uh, come into existence in the same way. Do you know how a snowflake, uh, snowflake comes into existence? Cold water comes through the air, and it attaches itself to pollution that's in the sky. And so a snowflake is nothing more than cold water that has attached itself to pollution up in the air. And we are a lot like a snowflake in a sense that we are all polluted. It's a result of being human. We are all far from God. So that's the bad news. But the good news is this, that through God's grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be set free. We can be saved as a result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's through Christ that we find the forgiveness of sins. It's through Christ that we're separated and we're broken from this world that we're pulled into. But, you know, we're also, we're also experienced freedom is a result of, you know, once a person comes into a relationship with Christ, they don't have to go back to sin that formerly enslaved them. You know, we are saved from this condition of being polluted, and we're saved from the condition of having to go back into our sin. And so that's what this passage is about. Christ has set us free so that we can enjoy our freedom. And that's what repentance is all about. You know, um, when I was uh, seven years old, I got a little bit of a glimpse of what freedom looks like. Um, I grew up uh, in California, and uh, we were about 10 when I moved. But when I was 7, um, I had the responsibility of picking up after our dog. We had a dog named Scooter, 
and uh, I'll let you figure out how he got his name. He's a pretty nasty dog. But it was my responsibility to go out and pick up after this thing every week. And so I'd go out there with my little shovel and a bag and, you know, I'd throw it in the bag. And I got tired of using the bag, and so at one point I figured I could just throw it over the fence. And so I'd go out to pick up after a scooter, and I'd just throw it over the fence. And, you know, this was working really great for a couple of weeks. And then one day, uh, there was a knock at the door. My mom called me over, and there's a little old lady standing at the door, and she's got this big bag. And she says, uh, she said, I'm sure you're a sweet little boy, but would you please quit throwing this poop over my yard, you know, over my fence into my yard? And so, uh, you know, she was really scary. But uh, there must have been a soft spot she had in her heart for me because we actually became friends. Um, she invited uh, me over to her house, and, and when we'd come over, uh, she'd make me tea. She made uh, this tea. She was from Poland, and uh, she made the best tea. But I'll never forget one time she was telling me a story of, uh, of how she came into the United States. She having grown up in Poland. She was actually in Poland back in the uh, late 1930s, 39, 40, when the Germans came in to occupy Poland. And um, she was in the country when the Germans first stepped in. And so the Germans went into Poland uh, to occupy the country and to eradicate the Polish culture and, and eradicate the Poles. In fact, um, during their occupation, 5.3 million Poles um, were murdered uh, during that time. And so, uh, and then those that weren't murdered were all enslaved. In fact, the governor, uh, the German governor at the time, uh, made a statement. He declared that Poles uh, were existed to be made slaves for the German Empire. And so, this was the environment that Mrs. Goliath came out of. And and she used to tell me these stories. And for a seven-year-old, they were just they were absolutely fascinating. And she told me about friends that she had lost, family members that she had lost. And she talked about the enslavement of, of, of just what it meant to live in that country. And when they came in, they came in to take her house. And so her and her husband had to flee uh, their house in Poland. And uh, the only things that she could take with her were the things that she was able to sew inside of her dress. And so she brought everything that she could. And they came to the United States and, uh, you know, they became citizens. But I remember she used to talk about her experience of escaping the slavery from Germany. And she used to talk about the United States in a way that for a seven-year-old was really fascinating. I kind of grew up with a sense of understanding what it meant to be free. I mean, freedom is something to celebrate. It's easy for us to take it for granted. But, you know, I know what it's like to be trapped and enslaved to sinful behavior. I can remember the point at which I came to understand my need for a relationship with Christ. I can remember the point at which I understood the joy of knowing that I was no longer separated from God and trapped in this world. And I've been able to, since having become a believer, been able to experience the ongoing effects of being able to repent and come before God and really enjoy the fullness of my relationship. You know, it's through Jesus Christ that um, we have the ability to unhook the chain. You know, we are separated from God. We're born this way. Every single one of us is born with a chain attached to our waist. We are all trapped in this world. But through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can cast that down. We're set free in a sense that Christ has died so that we can enjoy freedom. Both freedom from the condition that we're born into and the freedom from the sin that just so easily entangles and snares us. And so that's what repentance is all about. It's about being able to explore and really enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, at this point, what I just shared with you is, is good news. But that's all it is. It's just good news. It's information. And so what we have to do is we have to decide how we're going to act on it. It would be like me saying, hey, 
I've got $1,000 for you right here. I've got $1,000 for you. What's your next question going to be? How do I get it, right? Well, if you want the $1,000, you just got to come get it and collect it. That's all you would have to do. I don't have $1,000, so somebody asked me that after the service. But, you know, it's kind of the same way with Christ. Jesus Christ offers us freedom. And so how do we get it? All we have to do is collect it. We experience freedom, the process of repentance. Repentance is our turning from sin and turning from God. Our relationship with Christ begins there. It begins in repentance and placing our faith in him. And the Christian life continues um, just as we experience this repentance on an ongoing basis and are conformed into the image and likeness of his son. And so repentance is something that we experience one time as we come into a relationship with Christ. It's something that we continue to uh, explore and experience as we grow in our faith. Repentance is, repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. And it's something that we're constantly working through. And I can think of no better example of what repentance looks like than through the life of David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a model of repentance. And if you brought your Bible with you, um, if you could go ahead and turn there, I want to read this uh, psalm with you. Uh, just go to the center and then uh, just go to the uh, right a little bit. But Psalm 51 begins with this. When the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed to adultery with Bathsheba, this psalm was written. And it begins in verse 1. This is David writing. And he says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin. It's always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from the blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not delight in pleasure and burnt offerings or I would bring them. The sacrifices of God that are acceptable are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then your righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings will delight you and bulls will be offered in your, in, on your altar. And so David, having been confronted with sin, writes this psalm and really gives us a perfect model of what repentance looks like. There's four elements of repentance I want to look at. But first I want to look for a moment at why this psalm was written. You know, it opened up by saying the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And that story actually happens uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it opens up by saying it's the springtime, you know, a time when kings go off to war. Uh, David sent Joab uh, 
Joab was the, uh, the head over his whole army. He sent Joab out there. He sent the king's men out there. So David had this elite group, elite force of warriors that he sent out there. And then he sent the whole Israelite army. They went out, they destroyed the Amorites, and they besieged Rabbah. And David remained in Jerusalem. Now, it's an important battle. You know, David, by all rights, really should have been there. All the other kings were out in battle. It was a time when David, uh, in his role as king, would have led his troops. But instead, he decides to stay back and he sends everybody else. Um, He stays back. And in verse 2, it says, One evening he got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from from the roof, he saw a woman that was bathing, a woman who was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Hey, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She purified herself from her uncleanliness, and then she went back home. And so every time I read this, I, you know, I got to wonder what's going through Bathsheba's mind. You know, I've got, uh, I've got four girls, and I always encourage them, look, when you're in your bedroom, make sure those shades are down. <laughs> you know, close the shades so that you, nobody can, you, can't see, you can't see out. If you can't see out, no one can see in. And so protect yourself from that outside world. But here we got Bathsheba, who's actually swimming and just enjoying herself, taking a little bath out here, right underneath the balcony of David's bedroom. And so, you know, I've always wondered what was going through um, her mind. At some point, you know, I think that she participates in this in a sense that he sends for her and she comes. And so she's, uh, you know, she's a willing participant in this mess. But you know what? In the end, this is David's issue. This was David's issue because David knew who she was. David knew that that was a married woman. Hey, this is a married woman. Isn't that, isn't that Bathsheba? Isn't that Uriah's wife? He knew she was married. And you know what else? Uriah was one of the elite special forces. And so Uriah was one of the, David's mighty men. He was 37th in the line. David knew who Uriah was. He was handpicked as one of his mighty men. In one sense, he's close to him. He's a friend. I mean, this is a guy that David trusted They'd asked to be a part of his elite force. And so David knew who this was. Not only did he know that she was married, but he knew that it was uh, Uriah's wife. David commits adultery. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Verse 5, it says, She conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David hears this news and devises a plan. He says, hey, you know what? I'm going to send a letter to Joab, the leader of the army. I'm going to say, hey, send Uriah back home. So when he comes back home, he'll be with his wife, and everybody will think that he just got pregnant you know, through, you know, from his wife. And so he does that. Uriah comes back. But, you know, Uriah is so committed that he says, hey, all those other leaders are out there. They're out there fighting. Why should I have the privilege of just going to spend some time with my wife? I'm not going to do it. And so he stays at the entrance of the city. Uh, he doesn't go in and sleep with his wife. And so David's plans back, backfires. And so then David, David just digs himself in further. He's trying to hide this sin. And so then he comes up with another idea. And this one is really uh, heinous. I mean, he just, uh, it's, it's a terrible plan because what he does, he comes up with the idea that he's just going to have Uriah killed. And so he, he, he writes a letter and then he gives it to Uriah. And he says, take this to Joab. And when Joab reads it, it says, send Uriah out to the front of the battle. And when he gets out there, pull everybody else back and Uriah will be killed. And so Joab, being the obedient officer that he is, does that. Uriah gets killed. And uh, word comes back to David and uh, comes back to Uriah. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. 
after a time of mourning was over, uh, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And so, so far, nobody knows about what's going on except David and uh, Bathsheba. But then it says at the beginning, at the end of verse 27, but the thing that the Lord David had done displeased him. God knew what had happened. And God was displeased. And David thinks he's hidden all this sin. A year goes by. And then uh, uh, the Lord uses Nathan, uh, the prophet, to confront David with this. And so in chapter 12, uh, uh, Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story about two farmers. One guy's got uh, one sheep. And this one sheep was uh, uh, very, very dear to the one farmer. It was a little lamb. He would raised it. He grew up with it. It says in uh, verse 3 that he shared his food with it. It drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And so one farmer has this little sheep, and it's just it's really dear to him. And then the other farmer's got this whole herd. I mean, he's just been blessed. He's got all these sheep. And so a traveler comes, and he says, uh, you know, can, I feed, can you feed me something to eat? Well, this, this rancher, this farmer with all these sheep goes, well, I'm not going to kill one of my sheep. So he goes and he takes the little sheep from the one farmer. He, he kills it, and he feeds it to the traveler. And so Nathan tells David that story. And when David hears it, um, it says in verse 5, he burned with anger against the man. I mean, he was upset about the injustice that was done. As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay the price for that lamb four times over because he did such a horrible thing and had no pity. And then Nathan, in verse 7, I love this, steps back and says, David, you're that guy. That's exactly what you did to Uriah. And then the God speaks to David and he says, Look, I gave you all this. Wives, I gave you everything you had. If you had wanted more, I would have given it to you. But instead, you had Uriah killed. And so David gets confronted with the sin that he thought was hidden. And then in verse 13, he looks over to Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's the point at which we get Psalm 51. After this happens with David, he goes off and he writes this psalm. David is done hiding. His sin has been confronted. He comes face to faith with sin. And he writes Psalm 51, which is really a model for us of what repentance looks like. And it's there that we find four essentials of repentance that I want to look at this morning. The first one is this. If we're going to experience repentance like David experienced, if we're going to experience genuine repentance, it's got to begin with confession. In acknowledging our sin. David writes in verses 3 and 4, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And so David is thinking about his, his transgression. You know, it, it's a transgression is a violation against God's law. David has been confronted with what he's done, and he knows it's wrong. In fact, he can't escape it. It is always before me. For the last year, I've been carrying this around with me. I know what I've done. It's always before me. You know, I think it's easy to look at somebody's life like David when we think about confession and think, well, that was really bad. I mean, what he did was really bad. I'm just, I'm glad I'm not like David, right? I think the the easy thing for us to do is say, hey, man, I... I'm glad I'm not that guy. But, you know, in reality, it's interesting because David committed uh, adultery and murder. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus says, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart with her. 
And so even if you look lustfully at a woman, it's the same thing that David did. And so, you know, guard your eyes. You know, what comes into your brain? How does your brain work? What do you think about? Now, those things are displeasing to God. Well, at least I haven't killed anybody. A little bit earlier, Jesus says this. You've heard it was said, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the same judgment. And so just having a critical spirit, being angry with people, is sin from God's perspective as bad as if you had actually done the deed. And so it's, it, it's easy for us to look around and compare ourselves to the people around us and say, well, we're not that bad. But the reality of this situation is, from God's perspective, it's all bad. God is perfect. We're not. That's the condition that we're born into. And so that's the condition of being sinful. We're all born into that. We're all prone to do these same things. And so it's a condition that we're born into, but it, there's also behaviors and acts that we, um, that, we, that we know that we're doing, like David, that we know are wrong, that we need to confess. And so a person comes to understand their need for a relationship with Christ. I'm a sinner. It's something that every believer has got to be able to say. You know, that's Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, that was, I remember that was something that was really difficult for me to be able to say. You know, it was interesting because, you know, just being able to say I'm a sinner. It's like, well, you know, you're talking to your friends. Let's bring that up at work tomorrow. You know, you sit around the lunch table and say, hey, I'm a sinner. How about you? <laughs> you know, it's difficult for us to admit that. But if we're going to experience true repentance, if we're really going to enter into a relationship with Christ and enjoy all that he has for us and explore that freedom, we have to start by confessing our need. Um, you know, we have to start by understanding that we are all separated from God, that we all fall short. You know, David says, I know my transgressions. They're always before me. My memory haunts me. And he confesses, I have violated your laws. Against you I've sinned. Simply put, you're right and I'm wrong. And he submits himself. To God. You know, when God confronted Adam, what did Adam do? Eve made me do it. And so then God looks over at Eve and, and Eve says, well, the serpent made me do it. And so the model that we have from a worldly perspective is to blame one another. But from a biblical perspective, we have got to come to grips with our condition. We have to understand that we are sinful. You know, Peter, when he's with Jesus, falls at Jesus' feet. He falls down and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You know, just coming into Christ's presence, he was immediately confronted with his condition. Paul says the same thing when he's writing. Paul writes this. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the worst of all. And so, you know, we have to get to the point that we can, we understand our position relative to God and where sin fits in with that. You know, true repentance begins with um, confession. You know, and it's... uh, it can be easy. Sometimes it's easy to confess. Sometimes it can be difficult. You know, when you think about, um, you know, confessing, is that something that you find easy to do or difficult? And so when you think about God's laws or you know, your own behavior, as you think about your situation, you know, think about your standing before God as just as a human being. Is it easy for you to say, hey, I am, I'm a sinner? Is it easy for you to confess? There's a place on your uh, outline down at the bottom, just on a scale from one to four. How would you rank yourself? Is that easy or hard? We're going to spend some time in just a moment kind of looking at each one of these four, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of reassess those. But is that something that is easy or difficult for you? Take a moment just to uh, think about that one. We have to confess. Then second, we have to request forgiveness. It's one thing to say, I made a mistake and confess. It's another thing to ask for forgiveness. 
David writes this in verses 7 through 9. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be made clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. You know, it's one thing to confess, but it's another thing to ask for forgiveness. There are actions and behaviors that we know are wrong, but we might not necessarily ask forgiveness for. Forgiveness is a secondary step. David knew what he did with Bathsheba was wrong, but then he had to ask for forgiveness. He, he begins the psalm by crying out for mercy. In other words, don't give me what I deserve. Take this punishment from me. Forgive that debt and take it away from me. You know, make it go away. I felt the weight of what I did. I know it's wrong. Let these bones that have been crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot it out. Please just make it go away. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be made clean. You know, hyssop is a, uh, it's, a it's like a twig uh, with, with little mint sprigs on it. It's really a rough bush. And David is saying, you know, cleanse me with hyssop. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, I used to pride myself on being able to take quick showers. I'd go in and I'd come back out. One minute, my mom would look at me and goes, you use a wash rag? It's like, oh, I use a wash rag. Look how quick I got out. Get back in there and clean yourself. David is saying, cleanse me with hyssop. Scrub me. Make me clean. And so he understands he sinned. He confessed. But then he really gets to the point where he says, I need forgiveness from this. Please take it away. I messed up. Take it away and forgive me. And forgiveness is a second essential element if we're going to experience genuine um, repentance. And so, you know, when you think about forgiveness, maybe there's something in your mind you think, you know, I know that was wrong, but I haven't asked for forgiveness for that. Or think about something maybe you've had to ask forgiveness for. You know, that could be a very difficult thing to do, just to verbalize, you know, hey, I messed up, will you forgive me? When you think about your own life and you think about what repentance looks like in your own life, is that something that is easy or difficult um, for you to do? You know, on your insert there, maybe just circle one of those numbers from one to four and just kind of, you know, reflect on, on what that looks like as repentance works itself out in your life. Is that difficult or easy? We have to confess. We have to ask for forgiveness. And then third, we need a change of heart. We need to change our attitudes and behavior if we're really going to experience um, repentance. David writes this in uh, these next verses in verse 10 and 17. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Change me. You know, create in me a pure heart. Renew my spirit. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Those things you do not despise. In other words, give me strength. Renew my spirit. Give me strength and a steadfast spirit so that I don't fall back into old patterns of sin. Give me a spirit that's unchanging, that's steady, that's uncompromising, that's unmovable, that's firm. Don't let me go back. Change my behavior. You know, I grew up in an environment where if I messed up, all I had to do was go to confession. Mess up, go to confession. Mess up, go to confession. But that's not where repentance is. We can pay penance. We can pay a penalty for our sin. But repentance is a change in heart. It's a change of attitude. It's a change in behavior. And that's what David is crying out for. And that's what we must have if we're really going to experience biblical repentance. You know, it's amazing to me how many times people go back to former sins. You know, I've asked for forgiveness, but then they go right back and they pick that chain right back up. You know, we have got to ask God to change our hearts. These verses aren't on your uh, outline, but in uh, verse 16, David said this, 
He said, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In other words, there's nothing that I can do to please you. And then he writes in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, in that, you are not displeased with that. And a sense of contriteness is that ability to just heart. Contriteness is like falling to your knees. It's like, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. It's a genuine apology. And that's what David's, that's what David's doing here. He understands he's sinned. He's, he's identified it. He's asked for forgiveness. And, in, and just with all sincerity, change me so that I don't go back. Give me that steadfast spirit. And that's what David's praying for. And it's, a, it's an important element of what we're going to do if we're really going to experience genuine repentance. And so as you think about your life and you think about this you know, desire to be changed, is that something that you would desire for God to, to change your heart? I mean, that's, it, it, it's one thing to identify it and say, I'm sorry, but how difficult it is you know, not to go back. You know, are you asking God to change your heart and to strengthen you so you're not pulled back to where you were? That's a, an important element of what it means to experience repentance. And so just there again on your answer on a scale from one to four, you know, is that something that is easy for you? or something that is difficult. And then there's the fourth element of repentance. And it's this. Acceptance. Accepting forgiveness and giving thanks to God. And this is the best part about um, repentance. Because this is about not just experiencing the guilt. Repentance is not just about guilt. It's about, it's about freedom. And this is what that video was about at the beginning. It's, it's understanding that, ooh, this is what my life is like. But, hey, in Christ, I'm made new. I am free. That is great news. And that is something to get excited about. But this is where most people just, this is where repentance just really breaks down for people. Because it's like, and did God really forgive me for that? I mean, am I really forgiven for that? I talked to a woman uh, right after I got involved with marriage. She was one, one of the first people I talked with involved in ministry. And uh, she came to me, and she had had uh, an abortion. And she, um, she, had just, she just could not get over that. And we, she'd been processing through that for years. And we talked through the process of you identified it. It's wrong. You've talked to your husband about it. You've confessed that. You know, is there anybody else you need to ask forgiveness for? She'd talk with her mom about it. And you ask God to change your heart. And then it's like, well, you just need to embrace that. She said, I can't. Acceptance can be the most difficult thing for us to, to be able to embrace, but that's an, that's an essential element of repentance. Repentance is really about believing that this stuff is true. You, 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 it's amazing how many people hold on to their past, and it robs them of the joy of forgiveness that's extended to them. And so acceptance is a fourth element of repentance. And so if you're still feeling guilty about something this morning, I just want to encourage you. David writes this in uh, verses 13 through 15. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. I'm going to share what you've done in my own life with others and others are going to turn back to you. Save me from this blood guilt. David deserved to die. He'd taken somebody else's life and blood guilt from a biblical perspective is they had every right to put him to death. And so David is like, save me from being put to death. You know, save me from that, oh God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. And so as you work through this element of repentance, a part of it is just sharing that with others. It's believing it in your heart and in your mind and, and sharing that with other people. And if that's where you are this morning, if you're holding on to something, and don't embrace the confession 
and the embrace the forgiveness, ask God to change your heart, and then know that he has done it. And then share that with someone else. Now, this is one of the most powerful things about a person's testimony. There is so much power in the spoken word. You know, in Acts 1.8, it says you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to be his witnesses. And we have, a, we have an opportunity to share uh, what God has done in our own life in a way that other people are drawn into a relationship with Christ. And so we share our testimony as a witness for other people. But you know what? We also do it for ourselves. Every time I have an opportunity to share my faith story with somebody, I get as excited as they are. It is great news that God doesn't leave us in a fallen world, that God doesn't leave us to try and figure out how to move beyond our past hurts on our own, that he gives us the strength to do that. And so this morning, if you're, if, you're just, if you're having difficulty with moving beyond your past, maybe as you think about repentance, you just need to embrace that and accept it. And that could be a difficult thing for people to do. And so this morning, as you think about you know, your own life and what repentance looks like in your own life, is that something that's easy for you to do? Are you stuck in your past? Are you able to accept what God's done in you? And are you able to share that with others in a way that you're continuing to be cleansed and others are being drawn into a relationship with Christ just like uh, David did here? And so there again on your insert, on a scale of one to four, you know, how would you describe um, how you feel about this area of acceptance? Repentance is about understanding our station, our position before God. He's perfect. We're not. We need to confess our sin. And then it's about asking for forgiveness. Father, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins. Or this is an area of my life, man, I really messed up. My attitude was wrong. My behavior was wrong. I'm acknowledging my sin. I need you to forgive me. And so repentance is, uh, is, is, is confessing and asking for forgiveness and then really just changing my heart. God, don't let me go back there again. And help me to accept and embrace what you've got for me. And that's what repentance is all about. And so, you know, in just a moment, we're going to spend a little bit of time in some extended prayer. I want you to reflect back on your experience of uh, repentance as you think about those areas. Are you clear in your mind this morning about where you stand with your relationship with Jesus Christ? This next verse in Acts chapter 2, Peter is um, speaking to a large gathering of Jewish people. And he says, look, Jesus of Nazareth was accredited to you by God in miracles and wonders and signs. He was the Messiah that you've been waiting for, and you crucified him. And then the, and, and it says that in the next verse that the Jews were, they were cut to the heart from their guilt. And Peter has the solution. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a one-time act of repentance. We come to understand our need for a relationship with Christ. We repent, and we're brought into a relationship with Christ. And so there's a one-time act of repentance. And then there's also an ongoing sense of repentance. You know, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and... Uh, these believers had just run amok. They were, they were false teachers. There was sin in the camp. And uh, Paul writes a letter in 2 Corinthians to correct this. Uh, and he says uh, in, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 7, I'm happy not because you were made sorry. In other words, I didn't want to have to write this letter to you and, and correct you. I'm, not, I'm happy, but not because you were made sorry. I'm happy because your sorrow led to repentance. In a sense that they understood they messed up. They had asked for forgiveness. They needed change, and they needed to embrace that. And so this repentance among the life of a believer is a continual thing that we experience as we continually come in to God's presence. And so this morning, as you think about um, repentance, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a decision that you need to make for Christ. You know, on this next slide, I want to ask you to think through 
Um, go ahead and go to the next one. It's got the, our response. Now, maybe this morning you just need to repent for the first time and put your trust in Christ for the hope of salvation. That's a one-time event. And you do that. You come to God and say, hey, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. You know, please take control of my life. Change my heart. And, and, and make me new. And then really embrace that and accept it. And so maybe this morning you need to come to repentance for the first time. Uh, if, if that's where you are, if that's the desire of your heart, circle the number one on your uh, welcome slip. And then when our prayer team comes forward, I want to encourage you just to uh, let them pray for you. Let them celebrate your desire um, to take that step. And then maybe, uh, maybe you're already a believer and you just need forgiveness of sins or you need the power uh, to live out the Christian life. And so maybe there's one of those areas uh, that you've identified that you say, you know what, I really need to grow in this, in this area. You know, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward now. We're going to have uh, some of our prayer partners are going to be up front, and then we're going to have some towards the back. And so I want to invite you as we spend this next few moments uh, in prayer, just to make this next verse um, your prayer. David says this in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so we want to give you just some time to, uh, to make that prayer a reality in your life. Pray that prayer um, with me this morning. And uh, if you would, um, we have prayer partners up in the front or the back. Um, we want to invite you to uh, just to, uh, to come. They'll love the opportunity to pray with you. Uh, we've got uh, some music I think we're going to play here for a little bit. And then we'll come back together in just a moment.